Welcome to You Never Forget Your First, the podcast about director's first films. We're going inside the head of director Spike Jones, who's gone inside the head of writer Charlie Kaufman, who's gone inside the head of John Malkovich, so you can go inside our heads whilst we go inside all these heads in Spike Jones's film debut, Being John Malkovich, released in 1999, arguably the best year for movies. On this very episode, we chat about how Jordan Peele's Get Out is actually a sequel to the film, Louis throws down his opinions on the building schematics of the seven-and-a-half-floor situation, and I try and convince the guys that John Malkovich is actually being controlled for real and was merely a puppet in the film's production himself. Next up, you'll hear us chatting about Benas's recently-watched film list, which puts any film-watching marathon to shame. Anyway, yeah, we need to get started because at this rate we'll probably get through Ben S's list by six o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that list is literally longer than anything I've ever watched in my life. I thought it was the list of episodes we've done so far. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a list of all the things I haven't accomplished in my life so far. I was like, how did someone get access to this? <laughs> Okay, so we definitely didn't have about half an hour of technological problems where Louis couldn't hear Sparrow and that was a real issue for everyone. I'm Dom, I'm your host, I'm joined by Sparrow. Hello, good to be back, good to be back. All the way from the call centre, joined by Louis. Hello, hello, hello. He's not in a call centre. And Benas. Hey, good evening. He sounds like he's got his own NPR radio show (laughs) going on. (laughs) For film broadcast, yes. Last episode that we all did together was Catfish. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because we will have the Spider Dobrovsky episode in between these two that Benas and I ran. Yeah, I was going to say, what was Catfish? Catfish, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) It's a documentary. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think we'll get a real life episode in again? Are we just back to being remote? (laughs) Fuck, I mean, hope not. <laughs> if, the, if the heat of my flat was anything to go by, I think we learned our lesson, right? <laughs> <laughs> never never do it again. That's I don't think we're going to have that problem in the next few months, though. We're going to have to hunker down to do it remote, right? Probably, yeah. By the, by the sounds of things. Everyone sounds anyway. jacked <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all good news. It's all good fun. There's a lot to look forward to. The, uh, the bleak midwinter. The fact that there's going to be no new cinema releases until next year. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty positive. It's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. I've, got, I've got a lot to be happy about. <laughs> I feel like we should tackle Benas's list before it becomes a, an hour-long discussion. Shit. I thought the list was uh, the one Yeah, that's why everyone's not very talkative. Because <laughs> just it. So basically, Benas has sent a list of what I thought was films I haven't seen. Like, all the films I haven't seen in my life. And no, not, it's what he's watched in the last two weeks. Benas, uh, I feel like the way to cut this down so we could um, get to the real heart of the matter is how many of these are cinema watches? How many of these have you watched in the um, cinema? I see Tenet's on there. Tenet's on there a few times. Lahane is on there. Yeah, Lahane was in a cinema. Chicago 7's not cinema, but it's like a new release, right? Or Yeah, yeah, it's a Netflix release. But you still can catch in some cinemas in Curzons. The ones that basically remain open because after I started going back to cinemas let's say to picture houses here in london then two weeks later they all closed so now all i have are like limited audience and you have um a few curzons but so yeah hard to yeah we should mention that because cineworld has has stopped has frozen or kind of stopped opening cinemas and they also own picture house which has meant the picture house yeah are not and also open so so cineworld the one in leicester square that one I walked past it and it looks absolutely closed, like for good. So not the picture house central, but the one they had on the side. So there's this, the whole thing is about them like freezing, right? They're not like fully closing. They're just stopping trading for the next yeah, so six months until there's a new release because Bond was meant to come out and kind of hype cinemas exactly. up again. And then they were like, nope. Sight. Still go, they still go to view. Yeah. <laughs> view, view still checking over, view cinemas. No, I don't think so. I think I saw view maybe open, but... Once again, no one's going to cinemas for some reason. Um, there's no new releases, I guess, is there? For the average person, there's yeah. no kind of... So for like when I went to see Lahane, it was like mm, 25, maybe 30% capacity. And I mean, cinemas aren't operating at 100% capacity due to mm. seat restrictions and stuff like that. But you, you feel very safe in cinemas. So I personally encourage people to go to the ones yeah, they can. Definitely. To, so like Prince Charles is open now. Um, quite a few cinemas were open for LFF that recently passed, finished. Yeah, Prince Charles is an interesting one because they're like on they're they're firing on all cylinders. Yeah, like, like with sending out emails and getting people to go there, but it's because their business model isn't fully reliant on new releases. Yeah, they show like old films, don't they? It's pretty cool. Yeah, and because yeah. they've got that, and then new films give like a bit of an injection, but 
because they have that backbone of showing old films that business-wise they're able to stay open so yeah anyone in london who wants to go to the cinema definitely check out prince charles because that's you sort of wonder whether whether the regular cinemas have contemplated and discussed that too do you know what i mean it's a a really good idea yeah yeah because there's so many like there's the, there's the there's the there's the kind of the classics like Godfather or Star Wars or whatever, but then like just any film like that has been released a few years ago or fifty years yeah. ago, which people love, like and it, if it came on just for one showing, like it would be really good to see it on the big screen. Yeah. So for for example, down here, the closest one for me, let's say Odeon, is showing Rocky, the first one. Yeah. And what they've been starting recently doing is sending out emails asking what people want to see in mm, films that's cool. on, on the screen. That's great. So that's really cool. Recently was Rock, uh, Rocky two, three, four, or five. I, I picked Rocky <laughs> four because that is just that is just it's anything, anything but five. That's so cool. They're asking people stuff though. Yeah, that's a really good idea. What would everyone vote for huh. if you could get one old film? I'd probably want to see the, uh, Nolan's following on on the big screen because I've only seen it on like a fucking YouTube screen. So that who's that? Um, this up and comer. <laughs> you, you may have heard. <laughs> Of him, I don't know. Yeah, I would have liked. I'd like to see following on the big screen. Yeah, because I tried to get a DVD, but I remember this was back in HMV times, and they were like, "No, this film's just been discontinued." Tell you what, this is reminding me of though. I went to Somerset House Open Cinema last summer, and I saw The Matrix on this massive screen. I was virtually like two rows from the front, and it really did strike me how the sound design in that film has been lost on me. When you actually see it in the cinema with all of the speakers and everything, yeah. But I felt like I was seeing the film for the first time, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that's the thing. At the, at the late summer, they were showing all these old films, but because nobody felt safe to go back to cinema, they didn't really, yeah, nobody really went to see any old films, probably unless you're Edgar Wright, pretty much went <laughs> to watch everything. Because, yeah, they were, they were showing st- old Star Wars films, um, Alien, all the classics basically were showing. Alien 3. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, just as we were doing the, the pod. But yeah, nobody, nobody kind of went to see it. In some ways, that's kind of... It's almost like a better a, a better opportunity than normal. You know, often you can, you always get the chance to see a latest blockbuster in a cinema, but how often do you get to see something that you weren't around when it came out yeah, in the big exactly. screen? Yeah, that's the argument to, 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 to open more, but I think we're... I think the reality of it is is that a lot of cinemas aren't open and a lot of cinemas are dying, which is yeah. is really um is really unfortunate. So yeah, I think if you can go to one and support it, then definitely because yeah. as soon as films come back out and things go back to normal, everyone's gonna be clambering to go back to see all these films that come out. And also, so this might be a decent seg to go into so when I watched Tenet for the second time, um I went into a screening and there was nobody there. Like the dude the projectionist forgot. I was there, so he didn't turn off the light. I had to chase the guy down and be like, can you turn off the light? <laughs> I'm in the film. So I kind of watched it like a, as a private viewing, which was cool. Um, yeah, that's, cool. that's awesome. But I just read today about, so basically about studios. It was about uh, the Bond film um, and how Apple were actually throwing some numbers at MGM to sell world rights for like a year, to lease the, the, the world rights for like a year for some amount of money. I think it was like 400 mil, maybe. Um, I think they were hoping for like seven to 800 mil to lease it for a year because it's, co- it's co-owned in a sense. Like uh, MGM is kind of distributing, I think. And Eon owns the bigger side of that. So the reason why they were looking to lease the film for like a year was because, and that kind of never dawned on me, was the fact that these companies, they take out, the, the reason, how they pay for these films, these big blockbuster films is, you know, they take out credit from banks. But what ha- what's happening now is because they're not getting any return on their investments. There's, you know, there's big hundred mil projects. Their credit rating is going down and, you know, that's how studios can fold as well. So it's not just theaters now, exactly big studios like MGM and Paramount um, and stuff like that. All those big massive films that had to come out basically sitting in the vault with, without any um returns on them and obviously the banks will eventually probably start chasing but like for example tenet even though it didn't it wasn't like a complete home run but it did i think it's made so far globally 325 million against like a i was 250 300 mil um uh, budget so at least they they kind of recoup there that um that side of you know it's not smash it or whatever in a sense it is to release a film to almost zero audience during a pandemic it, it, yeah it feels like tenet was the guinea pig of it for yeah. big releases yeah, and yeah now everyone's kind of decided like june moved and wonder woman moved everyone moved basically everything yeah. until christmas has moved yeah. yeah so um and again that's kind of hurt also as far as hurting the studios is hurting the 
later down the line relationships with distributors because something like Disney, who keeps, you know, just flooding the streamers with their latest releases like Mulan, who's, that was meant to come out during, um, while Stenet was out, would have brought more people into seats. That's kind of, it's definitely hurting the relationship with Disney between distributors because they, with also what it used to do, Disney, is they used to uh, recoup the bigger chunk of the price ticket. So I think they, I think for Star Wars Lost Jedi, they were going for, they wanted, I think it was about 65 to 70% off ticket sale. Right. So that's a, you know, that's more than half taken from the house, you know, regardless. I got a feeling that's about to change and, you know, Disney might buy back and just start pushing way more films onto their, their, their platform. Well, yeah, that's the recent news, isn't it? That's, that's kind of, we can't go a whole episode without yeah. talking about films going to streaming <laughs> and that, like, that's the big news is that Disney supposedly have started to pivot, are going to pivot their business more towards producing for streaming than for cinema, which is huge because they're, they're a massive company. If they'd start doing that, you know, that's going to influence a lot of other people to think about yeah. how to do that successfully. So it's quite a, that's quite big news. I mean, Disney mm. launched what, in about April or May, March this year? I can't remember. So, somewhere around there. Early pandemic, basically, right? So since then, what they've had is about 100 uh, million subscribers now to their, to their streaming platform, right? So that's very lucrative for them as opposed to releasing Mulan to some tickets, maybe any, maybe none, right? So I get it from their side of business, but you know that's what what happens when Disney decides. You know, how about we own a theater? How about we we buy the fucking Odeon or whatever and release it straight into there? Cut out the middleman. There's that law, isn't there? Yeah, but that's that, been revoked. That, it's not no longer yeah, there. Yeah, I never knew about that, which is cra- I don't know if anyone else knew about this, but I, it's called like the Paramount Law, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But it, it's like a law that was in place the last sixty or seventy years. It's the nineteen forties, I think. That stopped studios from buying cinemas. Yeah. That's apparently about to expire, and so it's going to. I think it already re- has. So basically, studios can now buy cinemas presumably that, to them. But presumably that didn't apply in if that was in the states, then it it didn't apply in the UK, for example, or other European countries. Well, what what major kind of studio do you know in UK? What I'm saying is it wouldn't stop. Disney from setting up a cinema in the UK, for example. Previously, um, I don't know the ins and outs of it. It might may it might have just been a just might have been US US, a US based, thing. But that's why probably have... it probably was. Might lead to just mega competition of private cinemas like Amazon Cinema, Netflix Cinema, Disney. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In a in a weird way, it might like ch- lead the charge back to the cinema because if Netflix can just buy a cinema and buy forty cinemas in London and just stream their films on Netflix, but also have them available in the cinema for people to watch, then that's a win for everyone. It'd be weird because it means you'd have to go to certain cinemas for certain films, whereas obviously up until now, it's just like every film is in near enough every cinema. I don't know the reason it was ever introduced, but that might have been the reason why. It sounds, it, why it was sounds yeah, makes sense. Netflix cinema is just like playing repeats of Friends every every week, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, if you have Warner's owning, uh, owning a theater chain, theater chain, Paramount owning a theater chain, you don't have any small independent cinemas because they won't just release any films to them. So it's monopoly on films. That's why it can't exist. Is that why it was... So that's why there was a law in the first place? I'd imagine... Yeah, it's because... It, I remember reading something about uh, them trying to create a monopoly and then Paramount, I think, they went through a shit time, much like MGM, in the 50s and 60s. That's where they had to sell off, sell off a lot of land. Presumably, it's also because... Like it becomes too powerful as a propaganda machine, right? If you uh, if your own if you have your own production and distribution, you literally control both. You can put whatever message out that you want. Yeah, yeah. So just to clarify, Ben, now what I meant was it makes sense that the um it makes sense that that was maybe a reason why the law was there in the first place, as in to yeah, stop yeah. it becoming like Amazon. But also the the other thing is if it if it does lead to like Amazon Cinemas, Netflix, Disney, it means like if you're in London, there's gonna there'll be everyone. But if you're in somewhere in the countryside, there might be like an Amazon Cinema and nothing else for miles around. Yeah. So you're yeah. just gonna go to see Amazon stuff or whatever it may be. It'll be a weird landscape if that, if that happens. I know it doesn't happen at cinemas already, but obviously it happens with with streaming already, right? It happens with supermarkets. But obviously, streamer is a new thing. It's only been around for like maybe 15 years. Yeah, I know, years? but I guess I guess my point is that the, the the model exists already in that you have these huge studios, right? Netflix creates a lot of content that also distributes it exclusively. So 
it's just repeating a model that already exists digitally. Sure. Yeah, it's just that it, the end user is different and yeah. that you have to go to a cinema. And But as far as I yeah. know, well, as far as I've read, Warners aren't looking to do that right now. Because, yeah, do Does this mean that we can have a YNFYF cinema? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Specifically to just beam the pod into? Sp- yeah. Or yeah, sp- but it, won't be, able to, it won't be allowed to show any films other than what ones we make. <laughs> <laughs> in which case there'll be a very short rotation of about three films <laughs> be like be like, be like an art house loop yeah it'd be like zen zen premieres every friday <laughs> saturday night we need to make like a mumblecore a mumblecore flick for the tuesday wednesday audience <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just play, the, play, you play old episodes of the podcast and people just sit there with like a black screen just listening <laughs> new cinema um does anyone have any notable things they've been watching that they want to shout out to one film i'd recommend just mainly because it still sticks in my mind it was a cinema watch uh it, it was a british film called saint Maud. it was a fe- uh, debut i think you're the horror aficionado and any horror film that you watch i feel like the bar is <laughs> it, like it's good like i definitely recommend it it's disturbing for sure and it kind of stays yeah. with you for a bit and that's what you want essentially out of a horror film Directed by Rose Glass and written by her as well. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, is it, you said it's a debut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, 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 did really, debut. it's actually done really well in terms of cinema and kind of um, critical acclaim. Yeah, I think that was a film that had, like in terms of when I went to cinemas, as far as I've done, it had the most people in the, in the theatre, which was uh, good to see because obviously it's a feature debut. Like it's an indie, indie as fuck film, so... Um, definitely recommend to go see that. I, I, I watched um, I watched the new Borat film over the weekend, the uh, subsequent movie film. I don't have you, has anyone else seen it yet? I've seen I've started watching it, but I had to turn it off. Is that how you get through so many films? You have like three or four on the go, and you just turn off. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, why, why would you start it if you had something else on the go? <laughs> I know I was I was very excited for this film. Like I, I've been wanting to watch it for so long, and still fucking haven't. So that just, shows, just tells you all you need to know. But Venice is in split screen. Venice has trained both his eyes <laughs> to look at one screen, uh, each screen. Pretty much. It's funny yeah. I haven't. I haven't heard about Sasha Baron Cohen for ages, and then in the last month, I've heard about Borat Two and the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yeah, he's very good. Like, in it. I, I haven't yeah. heard about him in film for for ages. Borat Two without spoilers, is it worth it? Uh, it's a similar format. It's a similar format and similar kind of tone to the first one, right? So it's that kind of humor that's sometimes just a bit like a bit needlessly silly. It's like over the top silly, um, <laughs> but underneath it, but underneath it is something really interesting, right? Which is the kind of you know it does sort of reveal a lot of the sort of prejudices and it's I I actually I heard an interview with Sasha Baron Cohen where he was asked an interesting question which was how is it different to the first one and he said to be honest I think the most different thing is that with the first one we we did this trip across America and there were you know we we bumped into people who were homophobic misogynist whatever and it was a real shock it was like really bringing to light something that people didn't know existed and it only existed in the fringes whereas now it's kind of everywhere and so i think for that reason it's all just dialed up to 11 so you know he's kind of um i won't give any spoilers away but you know he he engages very actively with the kind of political situation in the usa goes to rallies and it's amazing how he manages to to actually embed himself given that everyone knows who he is now i was gonna say yes people people before when he did it people would have not been none the wiser and just thought he was some eccentric guy as yeah. a real person whereas now most people or no not most people but a lot of people will clock you know it's a, yeah as, as that film came out like more and more political headlines were like bora in this bora in this i know i know <laughs> i mean i think it, i yeah. saw that um kazakhstan have actually oh yes um, adapted initially the they banned borat one but I th- they're actually almost in endorsing this not endorsing it but like kind of they playing obviously... off it yeah, so I mean, the first one they famously sort of sued Sasha Baron Cohen for because they didn't give him permission to kind of use them in the film. And obviously they thought they came off it really badly. They've made a much better decision this time, which is just to kind of embrace it. Oh, and so they're yeah. using, it's nice, they're using it as the <laughs> as their like tourism slogan now. <laughs> they might as well uh, join them. Their new slogan for tourism. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's definitely worth a watch because it's unlike anything else. You know, it's just a different type of comedy and a different um, type of film. So it's worth watching. It's interesting. The last film was 2006 and there's been a flurry of films like Bill and Ted, Borat, 
Ghostbusters, like all of these kind of films that are revisiting like sequels, like 20 years. Yeah. I mean, Bill and Ted was 30 years between the sequels. Um, yeah, it kind of, um, I, I, I laughed. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's good for your nostalgic reasons. Of course, it's one on your list. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't even see it. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, no. <laughs> yeah but that's like us doing a pod in like 30 years like coming back in 30 years it's like, like when was the last one so... <laughs> we don't even know that when we did the last one two weeks ago yeah. let alone, <laughs> like, that was sometime in 2020 quite it is funny that, that people do recognize him though no spoilers but there is this one scene early in the film where he decides he needs to be get a disguise right so he kind of goes to a as borat he goes to a costume shop like a fancy dress shop to try and find like a costume to disguise himself in and the shopkeeper's like showing him various options and one of the costumes is a Borat costume <laughs> um, <laughs> really, really funny. Funny. it just shows like yeah that he is a little more impressive that he managed to you know get away with it um speaking of weird films should we get into film of the week which is Borat <laughs> no. so this week's film is being John Malkovich which came out in 1999. The synopsis for it is, a puppeteer discovers a portal that leads literally into the head of movie star John Malkovich. So this was directed by Spike Jones. For me, at least, Spike Jones is kind of an interesting director because someone that I know, I know their, sort of thought I knew their films well and knew that they did a couple of collaborations with Charlie Kaufman. When I started researching him, I didn't quite realise how much influence he kind of had with music videos, with uh, skateboarding culture back in the early 90s. Big, big um, influence, I'd say. Yeah, he made a, a, a film called Video Days, I think, in 1991, which is considered to be like one of the, the most influential skate videos of all time, which is crazy. He did a lot of music videos with like Beastie Boys and Daft Punk and Fatboy Slim. I think he did music videos with like every big star that there was around like the 90s which was like the heyday for music videos but i yeah i never knew that he had this whole i don't know if it's like counterculture kind of thing that you know like skate videos and magazines and like all this kind of stuff it's just interesting to see because his filmmaking style is so inventive and so as i do feel charlie kaufman's quite an inventive writer they were kind of always meant to work together in some way but yeah i just i didn't there's so much i didn't know about him as a director and yet he hasn't directed that many films. Yeah, I didn't. And it probably explains this a little bit, but I didn't realise he direct, He was the director behind that Kenzo thing that came out in 2016. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Mm, yeah, like, the Kenzo uh, ad. That kind of is similar to his Fatboy Slim well, music yeah, video. Yeah, because you brought that up. It's if I didn't realise that either, but it feels like it's much more of a music video than an ad, right? And yeah i mean it's it's brilliant it's brilliant i had no idea it came from him touching on his like ad stuff like he did med men um the new normal i think prior to that he did um that apple music one and those two feel very similar as well neither of them feel like ads i sent sparrow the gap ad earlier yeah. the, the one where everyone just like, <laughs> like the, everyone so just destroys everything it's so good it's like back when advertising had massive budgets and really simple end lines and you could just get away with like anything I mean, yeah that he... ad always always makes me is laugh he... it's kind of interesting because there's a correlation between spike being john malkovich propaganda films yeah, yeah. fincher <laughs> feels like they're kind of the same yeah it's, in, it's almost like a throwback yeah. um to that to that episode a bit because there was there's a kind of a lot of connections between them not one the main one being that propaganda films produced being john malkovich fincher and uh, jones they're both kind of like 90s very similar uh, associated with 90s um which was the rise in commercials and rising in these kind of inventive films such as american beauty such as being john malkovich and stuff and uh and essentially later down the line fight club from fincher so they're both very 90s kind of like i can see what in commercials as well because 90s had this kind of like turnaround on commercials i mean fight club is even the same virtually the same is it the same year as john malkovich yeah fight club is 99 i think good yeah like i said good year for both of them at the cinema which one i don't know it's worth saying both of them and the music videos that spike made are pretty iconic it, it, i mean loads of them but especially the beastie boy was yeah, um, yeah ones like the sabotage music video which is just like a spoof of a 70s cop show it's nuts like these two directors we've done like their careers before they even went into film were very successful and quite mm. creatively ambitious this we're going to talk about being john malkovich in a sec but if you watch the rest of his films so like um adaptation adaptation isn't i'll mention this again probably but but both of the adaptation and being Joel Mal Malkovich both 
Charlie Kaufman's writing. Um, but I'd, I'd argue they're not as creative as his later films or as those ads are. They're very kind of like, definitely not by the numbers or anything, but just very straightforward kind of like, this is the story. And, you know, there's not, not much of creative camera movement. Um, John Malkovich has a few, more, more so than uh, adaptation, I'd say. I slightly disagree a little bit with some of that in that being John Malkovich is quite, I feel like it's quite creative in in all the departments that it needed to be. So like writing, directing, set design, right, and right. kind of how those three integrate with each other. Kaufman's kind of gone on to have his own career of weird <laughs> kind of high concept films like Eternal Sunshine or um, Anomalisa. Yeah. Mm. The thing is, one point I'd argue the most about this film being John Malkovich is it doesn't feel like a Spike Jones film. It feels like a Char- Charlie Kaufman film. That rare instance where the writer is like more, yeah, yeah, prominent, more like prominent than the director. It feels very way. similar Absolutely. to uh, Spotless Mind. Well, that's, yeah. what I, that's what it reminded me of a little bit. Like just the basically screenplays that don't make much sense. Well, <laughs> yeah. Which was directed by Michael Gondry, Eternal Sunshine. Even though you could watch that and be like, maybe Spike Jones made it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, mm, yeah. With Charlie Kaufman's films, I'm just going to mention the two for now, Adaptation and Being John Malkovich. They both overtake Spike Jones in the sense that it's, I would never be like, oh, that's distinctively and clearly Spike Jones' film because her and the films like her and Where the Well Things Are, they do have that feeling that this is Spike Jones' film. Like he has come off as an author, whereas this kind of just feels like, oh, this is Charlie Kaufman, you know, just throwing all those weird ideas at the, at the wall and stuff. Um, yeah, certainly with her. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, he's only directed four films, right? Yes, four features. Four features, yeah. uh, short film that was f- similar to, uh, familiar or similar to her, which was uh, "I'm Still Here." I think uh, it's a short. It's a thirty-minute short film, uh, which has again a couple of wacky ideas and stuff. The story about how Kaufman tried tried to get it made and no one wanted to get it made, and it was everyone was turning it down and saying it like wasn't being John Malkovich. John Malkovich, yeah, and then um, he sent it to Francis Ford Coppola, who passed it on to Sophia Coppola's boyfriend at the time that who was Spike Jones. What what did you what did you make of it then, Dom, overall? So this is the third time I've seen it and I watched it probably five years ago for the second time. So this time was kind of a nice I always find a third or second or third watch is quite nice because you know what's coming so you can sort of experience it in a different way. I really enjoyed it. I love the sci-fi aspect to it. I love the idea of kind of consciousness and going into different people's consciousness. I think that's interesting. I think it's done here in a way that very few films afterwards have managed to achieve, which is that level of comedy and insight with performances that also carry that weird tone. Like Sorry to Bother You kind of had a similar tone to it, but it was a completely different film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more I like ruminated on this, the more I thought, Maybe and maybe it's like ninety. We, I think we spoke about this on American Beauty, but nineteen ninety nine just being this weird golden year. I just think this film had the right writer, the right director, and was made in the right era at the right time with the, with really the right actors like Cusack. Yeah, which Having we'll come Cusack. on to. <laughs> yeah. I sort of don't think it's um, it's not aged as well though as the likes of American Beauty and you know the other ones, the other ones from that that, that time that um, that were more about I think a kind of more timeless comment on the human condition, like like the the big. Thing that stuck out to me watching John Malkovich now was is that it is done in this really surrealistic kind of like sci-fi is a good a good description for the way that it's treated this idea of entering someone's consciousness but with AI as it is it's basically an episode of Black Mirror where where watching it in 2020 you sort of think you know there are ways of doing this that aren't particularly that hard to reach that hard to kind of evoke through some sort of completely fantastical idea of crawling through a wormhole so i don't know it almost it almost felt too surreal for me given that the topic is actually something that's quite realistic now quite interesting like codifying someone's consciousness that's interesting because i yeah i would have thought you maybe would have said the opposite in that like it dated it for me but like the concept of like 15 minutes of fame basically yeah is like almost a precursor to what it's like now on social media and i didn't yeah yeah yeah. i guess you're right yeah the biggest was the message around it i guess the higher theme behind it is still relevant but i suppose it's the um i don't know it's the fact that it's got some kind of totally fantastical element to it that that feels a little bit dated i i guess what i'm saying is that you know if that was if that was done in 2020 it would be a it would be like a little a little tech thing you know like we've managed to kind of just 
to codify <laughs> yeah Malkovich's consciousness and we can just kind of literally like plug you in and, and uh, but the thing is and and that that would be a, such a sort of believable thing whereas the idea of like crawling down a magic tunnel it's kind of it's suitable for it's enough because you just suspend your disbelief and you sort of say okay fine well I'll just imagine that this is this is true but because it goes in straight into the world of kind of magical sci-fi it sort of dates it to me not necessarily nothing is explained because you have that captain guy because he does kind of do his what actually happens kind of exposition side of it but nothing is explained because you know these people fall once the 50 minutes are done they fall out by the side of the road in somewhere in new york now you're here so. it's an, i would say that i took it a little differently i kind of saw it as a it's kind of like night 90s kind of like depressing alice in wonderland type especially the fact that it has a small door that this dude <laughs> yeah that, yeah that yeah. seven and a half floor makes me <laughs> laugh so much um, <laughs> honestly i love that when he's like we got a low overhead dylan in the back just like sweating over all the money that's over <laughs> But yeah, I didn't take this as a kind of like 15 minutes of fame. I just kind of saw this as um, how people, like in the early 2000s, a lot of people read gossip and uh, those gossip magazines and, you know, just like, what, what's the latest it? What's the latest? What's... And this is the kind of literal thing into it. Kind of you want to live through the eyes of a celebrity. So you don't necessarily want to be a celebrity, not forever at least, but because then you see the ramifications of that in towards the end of the film. But you want to... You want it for at least 15 minutes a day at a time at 200 bucks a pop. That's what I saw it as. I didn't see it as a kind of like the singularity with this, these guys kind of like trying to fuse them together. So I didn't see the, the sci-fi all that much in this. I was like, no, this is seven and a half floor. This is a mini door. I'm, I'm, I'm down with this. I'm following you with it. And that's why I didn't mind yeah. the fact that these guys just end up by the side of the road in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the fact it, sp- it kind of spat you out somewhere that was a bit disgusting almost made you yeah. kind of look on yeah. what you've just and done. And it kind of looks slimy, almost like dirty when they come out. I'm not sure if it's because of the portal or the hole or the fact that they just by the side of the road. But yeah, like, yeah, I couldn't work out what, what, what that hole was because it's almost like it was meant to be full of shit is that just me is that just my dirty that? mind that's, inter- that's interesting um, it's like you have to crawl through shit in order to get into their their mind but it's not explicitly it doesn't call it out but it's kind of intention there's intention there because like uh cusack's character i think steps in it with his hand or whatever like he as he's crawling he does like look at it like it is shit so yeah, yeah i see yeah. Why, you, why you say that but it's true that there are kind of two there are probably two different ways of looking at it right so there's and there's probably a lot more but there yeah, are two probably. themes there's only two <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like one theme is the idea of consciousness and what what is consciousness you know can you just go into it and embody like the soul within the body and everything and the other is yeah the bigger theme about how celebrities are not seen as as people who deserve privacy um yeah. and their own and so it's like their, their consciousness should be for sale on a far more superficial level i honestly just found it quite funny um like is there, it's kind of a flagship for like oddball comedy um but not even like so the bit when they all go through and it, he's, he, there's loads of malkoviches and stuff but it's more just there, there's a fine line between something being it's so random it's funny which is like kind of a cheap gag and it's like funny for a little bit but it's not that funny but i just found loads of bit like the bits where it's, yeah john malkovich you know he's famous and it's like what's he been in and it's like uh, loads of stuff but he can't name anything it's just like or, or at the end when like they um it's like you know reinventing the art of puppeteering and it just takes itself so seriously i just i did find it <laughs> really funny and it's, it's interesting because i watched it a few years ago it wasn't that i disliked it but i was just like I'm, it's okay and i'd heard it's a bit odd you know um as a, it's, it's unusual and i spoke to someone about it and he was like i can't work the person i spoke to was like i can't work out whether it's a good film or whether it's just very famous because it's weird but on re-watching it i actually really did enjoy it but like i said it, i didn't i didn't really bother reading into it too much i just, just found it quite amusing um that's quite an apt read of the film though because that i i, I watched it alone and actually there, there were bits i burst out laughing just because of certain <laughs> lines or timing with comedy yeah, yeah same Someone just makes a witty remark, yeah. and it kind of catches you off guard. Yeah, just just the bits where like the guy who rants it was like, "I'm sorry if you can't understand me." It's like, and I can hear you perfectly clearly. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah. then the woman yeah. can't understand him. It's like, yeah, like Craig Schwartz. I didn't go anywhere. You, you've got some warts. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, no, it's, yeah. Just, it's just like what do you want? And then the other thing is like, I don't know whether the 
with with the, this the um the the low ceiling floor. Yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like they make the low ceiling floor because of that small like lady, and that's where the portal is. But I, I didn't did it ever explain the relevance of the of him build apart from it for that that lady being short. There's no kind of further meaning to yeah. it. Low overhead. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's no like, it's not like, oh, they needed the low ceiling for the time travel. It's just like, no, that's the reason. Like, it's just like... everyone walking around in that low ceiling, like the way that people move, they oh, look yeah, like, like puppets. puppets kind of punch forward. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I doubt that was the single intent to do it. I, I did read that Kaufman just found it funny <laughs> to just have a seven and a half floor. There was an element of like just the absurd about the film, right? And I feel like they were just sort of trying things without necessarily going anywhere and just sort of seeing seeing what sticks. At, at the beginning, as well, it takes a while before he finds the portal. So at the beginning, I thought it was going. It could just be if you took out the whole John Malkovich element, it could be a film where like he has a wife, he's chasing yeah. Maxine. In fact, he tries to get a vaccine, and then Maxine ends up getting with his his wife, and that could be like a film in itself, irrespective of any of the John Malkovich stuff. Because it does t- it does take a, a bit of a while before he before he finds the portal. What's interesting about that though is I read that Kaufman had the he had a film idea to to, to do exactly what you just yeah. said, but then had this other idea to like enter John Malkovich, <laughs> and, then, and then John Malkovich and he was available, just, <laughs> and just fuse them together, and that's how the that's how the film kind of came about. A reviewer did say there's enough idea is in here for 15 films and i think that that's yeah. probably quite true yeah i agree with that so what's her name maxine she was kind of suggesting initially that she wasn't really attracted to john malkovich physically but she i guess she's straight so she was kind of she was in love with she was she was in that relationship with john malkovich but when when lottie was in in his consciousness so i was like okay fine i can get that but then when she found out that john cusack's character was in John Malkovich. She was still into it, and as far as she was concerned, she was she was then with a guy that she didn't find particularly attractive, with a guy that she didn't like in his in his brain. But then she was happily in this relationship, and I don't really understand why. I got the impression she was addicted to like power and control, and and when yeah. he was able to control Malkovich and therefore serve her through him, and Malkovich was like the powerful vessel to do that through. And then when he did the whole puppet show, the dance with Malkovich. <laughs> brilliant so well filmed and put together that, yeah, that, was, um, that right. she really found a use for him i think that's kind of how that relationship played out right yeah she's the only person that doesn't go through the portal to be malkovich she only goes through to it to escape lottie to escape lottie and then go through his memories but she's the only person that never really like yeah. kind of feels what it's like to be someone else and so i don't know i feel like she gets that through kuzak's character controlling malkovich she's the only person who's comfortable in her own skin so like when cusack is hitting on her she's straight away coming on with this like oh you like my tits or do you want to have sex with me and it, as soon as he says that she no longer has use for it for him because then because then she's like ah fuck it throw, throw away so uh yeah i think don't be right she's kind of like looking for this thing to control because like whilst while he was becoming the puppeteer uh malkovich uh doing away with acting she was happy to be there and kind of to guide him guide his career and to kind of get him into this perfect perfect being or whatever and then once he mastered that when he was at the top of his game she was like well there's nothing here for me to do anymore that's a good read on her yeah throughout the whole thing she was the most confident for uh, more confident than like malkovich and kusak and everyone put together in that film so yeah I th- mm. I, I, she was the puppeteer. Away from it also by the way she she appears in like two more of his films or spikes yeah <laughs> she was great i thought she was so well cast and i yeah. read that she didn't she almost didn't want to do it because she didn't like her character yeah, yeah, yeah. in the slightest like she she's in another first though. as well the 40 year old version she in 40 year old yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Solid first. laughs> Is that going to be your iWord? There's going to be something there. I can feel it. I read that uh, Kaufman wanted to choose Mal because there was this big thing about like why Malkovich, and it basically was just because Mal- saying Malkovich over and over was just fun, and that him as an actor had like a certain enigmatic quality, which he felt was kind of right for the film because a lot of people, including Malkovich, said why shouldn't it? Why isn't it being Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's also there's also an element of like the char- the actor, whoever it may be, Malkovich or whatever, they have to be you know willing to take the piss out of themselves quite a lot because the whole film is like you're playing yourself you're going people are going to your head you got you can't take yourself too seriously um whereas some actors some might be like well i'm not doing that i think he was like if it does bad my name is forever associated with it Mm. but if it does well i'm forever associated with this film (laughs) was it well received when it came out 
Yeah, like all the critics loved all, all the right places. So critically, it was very well regarded and obviously financially more um, just the same. So Vanilla Sky is one of my favorite films and Cameron Diaz is really great in that. And she's also really great in this. This is this was against type, really, mm. because this was after the mask when she was... Yeah, yeah. Like the bombshell. And then this, I think she was barely recognizable. Apparently she wasn't recognized by the crew. Like she was straight up <laughs> in her costume, go talk to the crew, and they were like, she was just a stranger. Um, Love so, it. Like to be fair, at the first few scenes, I forgot that Cameron Diaz was in this, so I was like, oh, who's this? So I just kind of kept along with it, and then until it was like a proper shot on her face, like, oh okay, Cameron Diaz. And her character at the start is so innocent and sweet, and then suddenly becomes like she kind of goes from being the role that you think she'll be the whole film, and then turning into kind of someone that wants everyone's just trying to like control Kuzak's character. It's funny that scene when Kuzak comes out of Malkovich and they're getting into the taxi <laughs> yeah. and he's like, hey, I, I want to be with you. And they're just like, get along. He's not with us. <laughs> <laughs> there is a bunch of that like deadpan stuff. Like I think there's a bit where Maxine's in the lift and he's like, he gives this big speech of like, I really need you. You're amazing. And she's just like, oh. And then like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, the door, and then the doors yeah, close. Yeah, Speaking of Kuzak, I think he played really well. Yeah. He got known for playing the offbeat kind of loser guys dark, in a the way. The kind of dark, dark um, grungy almost kind of type. Essentially, it was typecast as this dark, edgy guy. He was in a couple of big movies. He was in like Con Air, Sparrow. He was in Thin Red Line. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was in High Fidelity, which was right after John Malkovich. And then Runaway Jury, which is like kind of a classic one. Make it, you know, cameos and the um and the director we're, uh, we've got in question. Wolf of Wall Street, Pink Sheet. That's an insane... I can't believe that Spike Jones. That, that actually was you that brought that to my attention. I had no idea that he... He'd come here, yeah, I remember that. picking that one up because I, I saw her and I saw a bunch of interviews with him and I was like, okay, that's the guy. And he's always kind of like this eccentric a bit. He was really good in Wolf, uh, Wolf as well. It is a cameo, but he actually did have yeah, it's some actually, like, cameo. It's a big yeah, it's cameo. Not really, yeah, I wouldn't really call it a cameo. It's like a small role. He's the guy in Wolf that's in charge of the small trading yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. The, the pink sheet uh, one that he, get, he gets to at the beginning. And he's like... Yeah, he's like, we don't we don't make a lot, but it's an honest yeah. living. You know? What's your name 50%. again? <laughs> he had another one in Moneyball as playing Brad Pitt. <laughs> that's so weird. New husband. And he, he's only in it for like a minute, but he does play like the kind of sleaze, awful kind of character. I read that the only reason he was in Wolf was because... His casting, the casting director he was working with was casting Wolf and he would do the scenes opposite people. Oh, right, right. And then yeah, they yeah. were just like, well, look, you're pretty, you can kind of act. Why don't you come and try this scene? <laughs> and then he was like, well, yeah, I won't turn down an opportunity to work with Martin Scorsese, see like what his directing is like and stuff. So it's kind of like undercover. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like undercover yeah. directing. Like, research, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll come back to your film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll come back. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I don't know if you guys read about the alternate ending that this film was meant to have. So ridiculous. No. Supposedly, the ending. I'll just read a little bit here. Instead of Craig making Malkovich a famous puppeteer in the original script, he announced to the world that he he is the master puppeteer and Malkovich is his puppet. He does a one man show in Vegas where Mr. Flemmer of Merton Flemmer, which is the company i think that he works at is actually the devil and tries to convince craig to get out of malkovich's mind so that he and his group can take over the world and you know they talk about the great mantini do you remember that puppet Terry he sees at the start that he's watching on tv yeah, yeah. he's watching this this like famous puppeteer guy when he's sitting next to the monkey at the start of the film they're apparently him and they both have a duel uh to see who's like the best puppeteer and then apparently he loses and leaves Malkovich, and then Flemmer and all the old people take over Malkovich and have him like rule the world, and like the devil is there, like pulling all the strings and all the rest of it. Apparently, it was just just sounded like nuts, like this other end. Yeah, I always wondered why they went on about the Great Mantini at the start. <laughs> I felt like there was a the bigger connection there, much like yeah, like a bigger connection. But you're right. He hearing that makes the actual ending sounds vaguely vaguely sensible. And it, that 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 ending was sort of kind of hurried hurried in a little bit, wasn't it? It was kind of one quick scene where you get his voiceover being like look away look away and then there's one only oh, one yeah, reference yeah, yeah. To it earlier on where which makes sense of that because he shows that book doesn't it? he just shows that picture in the book about getting stuck in child subconscious like you can watch it like a comedy like sparrow is saying um and, and just enjoy it for that but then you can look deeper i think with a lot of kaufman stuff and especially because his 
leads are never really heroes they're more like people that you just accept and maybe identify with in some way there isn't that other kind of thing that gets in the way like this person has to win the day or there has to be that driver it always feels like it comes back to the concept yeah i feel like with his characters kaufman's at least in his writing in this film you can at least um identify with one of their flaws that you can understand and kind of like take it on your level so for example in uh craig's case he just kind of wants to be a master like this you know, be rewarded for his work, essentially, of being a puppeteer. And that's his ultimate goal, essentially, in this film. And then you, with Maxine's character, you kind of, like, you understand why, for example, she charges the shit out of this, you know, this little hole that people go on, go in and spend 200 Lottie's character, you know, who's who's just kind of, like, going after the essentially a lust thing with Maxine, at least in the beginning. So there's they're all kind of pieces of shit, but at least you can identify with them on some level. And that's kind of enough to get you on board with this film. And I feel like that's a lot with a lot of his shit. That whole bit where the monkey remembers, <laughs> remembers like untying its family. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, so goes horrible. nowhere. So funny. No, but I think that's, I think that's there to show you that like, <laughs> but the idea that it had learned from the previous. The trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like there was, more of a comment there i just want i was because i was always like well they could have just not shown that and it would have perfectly yeah, made sense in terms of consciousness and that kind of thing yeah i think you're right with the parrot as well uh, at the beginning she's kind of telling to um the guy craig's character to get up and at, mm. at first before you see the parrot you think it's his other half so lottie but it turns out yeah. that you know it's a parrot so everyone in the story has has a conscious and you know something that can be transferable in terms of value as far as this film goes it's a it's almost yeah. like a currency that's why when he comes out of malkovich he's like but i'm just gonna be craig schwartz again <laughs> i have no money <laughs> yeah, yeah. no one likes me and i have no money um yeah it's, it's yeah. a big thing about um i i think uh, at least of finding escape in somebody else um, just because you're not satisfied with your current situation kind of thing. Uh, on the kind of comedy side of it, I was just watching an interview with um, Jones. There was an interesting thing about how the film's quite bleak and quite dark, actually, cinematography-wise, like visually. Apparently, when financiers saw the film and saw how dark it was, they were like, this is meant to be a comedy, and comedies <laughs> are lit with a lot of fill light and very bright. Oh, yeah. And they were kind of like, okay, well, this isn't the direction that we want to go. But then they realized that the seven and a half floor kind of scene where there's a lot of light and it feels a bit more like an office scenario, like relatable, it's kind of funny, that kind of saved them a bit, bought them a bit more time to explore. But then supposedly the finance company that was financing the film was bought by Universal. And so they just had this window where they weren't bothered by anyone from the company yeah. because there was a slight takeover. And so by the time they got finished the film and everyone started getting back interested in it, they just had the film as it was. So I don't know if that had anything to do with not being bothered through edits and stuff, but it's kind of interesting that you would get that note about wanting to make it look like a comedy, even though in a lot of ways that's only one reading of the film. At the beginning, the, the opening scene when the, the puppet is dancing to that music, I wouldn't say it's creepy, but it's slightly unnerving. Oh, that yeah, that was pretty dark. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was quite dark. Where he's doing the dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, the puppet, it's just like, if you didn't, if you had no context of what the film was about, it's like, this is just eerie. Disturbing <laughs> like, for, for yeah. sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, the yeah. puppets are creepy. <laughs> the kind of idea that there's people like controlling people that controlling people, controlling people, I don't know. It, I do find that with some of these films, there is like a clear parallel with, with filmmaking. You're right, you're touching the right point about, you know, films are all about manipulation and control how a person feels at, at 30 minutes at 25 minutes at the second half at the third third act whatever and you know it's always it's always meant to be about, about the control of emotion and essentially if it's like titanic like that kind of film it is aiming to make you cry and break you at, at towards <laughs> the end so it's it is there's a lot of parallels with puppeteering i'd say you're right and another point so spike jones obviously his first film yeah his first film and the fact that he did have that window of, of opportunity to finish the film in between you know financiers getting in the way i feel yeah, like that's i think that's quite important yeah because like it could have been a scenario of, of david fincher alien 3 you know where they're like no you have to do this or we'll pull the plug on the finance or whatever so. on the puppeteering that could be a, a, a slight whittling purely because arguably um ford coppola's most famous film is the godfather um and the the, the imagery of that is a puppeteer, uh, yeah, just yeah, a cross yeah. of the guy holding up or pulling the strings. Um, which is, if you ever see, like, next time oh, you yeah. recognize it, if you see the Godfather logo, it's got the puppet, a puppet thing above it, yeah, yeah. meta. I mean, oh, that, that would have been a really good eye, 
Damn, yeah, that would have been a really good eye. Yeah, I, guess, I, guess, oh. I, didn't know the, I didn't know Ford Coppola was linked to it. Yeah, before we get on to iWords, the only other thing I want to say, I do feel with Jones's films, the way that they're shot is kind of interesting. It's like, it's handheld, but it's not shaky cam. No. And it's not filmed in a way that is often like it's barely square on at all actually he just seems to achieve this same kind of feeling of the camera in every film and i'm just like i'm kind of amazed by it whenever i was watching clips from her or or being jamalkovich i was always like how do these feel the same but it's still through the it's through the kind of concept of just handheld camera which to be honest nowadays has become quite similar and there's some, I don't know what if he uses a certain camera rig or a certain camera, but it just feels like he achieves this look. Big depth of field, yeah. handheld, isn't too close to the actors, but isn't too far away. So yeah, with, with Spark Jones, the way his vision kind of works, it seems that it's a lot of time it is about documentary feel where it's it's the most naturalistic so a lot of his films are natural light especially like so for example her um a lot of that was actually just like la uh, shot in uh, on the beaches of la with like camera like on, on the shoulder and stuff so i think that's his mo- yeah his most prominent feature i suppose would be is that a lot of it is just shot on like on location and available light and uh not massive setups because yeah um, if you watch any of his behind the scenes, usually the crew, like some scenes, of, uh, some scenes in a film would have like four four crew members on set because you don't, yeah, you don't need them. With him, also just to touch on that, would so the gap ad you sent, um, I really liked it by the way. But once again, even though that, there's so much kind of destruction going on in that ad, it does feel Spike Jones does feel warm in a sense, uh, like, like her feels warm, kind of like uh, like where the wild things are. That kind of thing, and like a lot of it, like even that Apple ad that feels, although everything's kind of like shiny and it's set in Apple universe, um, it's still kind of like Spike Jones because it just feels it's inviting, makes yeah, you want to watch it, and it's kind of like there's nothing too alienating or too. It's like the guy that sees the mannequin and just runs and like rugby tackles yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah. such a good exactly, moment. and that's like that kind of sets up that whole ad. Now you know what's good. What this is going to be. I suggest because you, I don't know if you've seen all of his films. I'd suggest going into his. So, for example, uh, her is his first. It's his debut as a sole writer, whereas everything else was, um, and that, that's the one he won an Oscar for. Yeah, for best screenplay. Yeah, that's right. So it's worth saying that that being John Malkovich was nominated for best director, best original screenplay, and supporting actress for um, Catherine Keener, uh, who played Maxine. She she nominated for for best actress. Yeah, Kaufman won uh, BAFTA for it, but he won for uh, adaptation. It's kind of amazing that as a debut, I mean, obviously American Beauty would have stolen the best, the they would have stolen Oscars from this film. They would have been in the same year, presumably. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were both 99. They would have been in the 2000 Oscars that, and American Beauty won best original screenplay. But that's a tight year because that's- So many like, good movies there. <laughs> yeah, I think John Malkovich could have clinched it if it had been another year. Yeah. I feel like one thing in common with all of these films is like Fight Club, um, being John Malkovich, American Beauties, they all hate on on office jobs. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was sure. really out of fashion to have an office job in 1999 because they're all just really like droney, like fluorescent lights, like horrible, horrible lifestyles depicted. What was going on in offices, man? Like, I think even Office Space was in 1999, which is like the film that hates on <laughs> offices. <laughs> kind of hate on materialistic things as well. Where, and for the example, Matrix. An American Be- Matrix, yes. Um, you earlier said something about being plugged into jo- John Malkovich, and I, that immediately sparked off Matrix for me. I was like, yeah, oh yeah, shit, yeah. 1992, wasn't it? Oh, but actually, there is a connection between Fight Club and Rap Pitt, isn't it? Uh, being John and Malkovich. Well, one, David Fincher, I don't know if anyone saw where David Fincher cameoed in being John Malkovich. He was a professor kind of being like, oh, his puppeteering just kind of like ripped the, ripped the world wide open. He's got <laughs> When they do that like TV segment on John <laughs> Malkovich. He's got like Sean Penn as well. Like Sean Penn. Finch is one of the guys like waxing lyrical about puppeteering, <laughs> which is so jokes, so considering random. that Fight Club was like in the same year. But the other thing is, do you remember the scene when... Mal- you're seeing it through Malkovich's perspective and he's ordering the bath mat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Blue. He says like, oh, can I get it in crystal blue or something? Ornica blue or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Ornica Blue, Edward Norton's character says that exact That he really color. wants it. Oh, well. really? Yeah, in Fight Club. So there was like a big hate on like consumerism yeah. with that. That <laughs> color must have existed in real life. Like, yeah, I remember it being a completely, it was like Pick a Lily or something. A completely random name that isn't actually a color. It's, like, it's just so funny when it's like, we're out of stock on that. And he's like, oh, okay. I guess I'll just get the Rose Velvet one. <laughs> 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 Malcolm was such a great fit for yeah. us. I can see why he was picked. In- I mean, he's just got a good name for it as well. Yeah. Did anyone notice that when Malkovich went into Malkovich and he was seeing loads of them everywhere, there was one tiny shot where his head was on a was on like a small girl? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that. His parents were like feeding her. <laughs> that must have been so much fun. Did anyone notice Spike Jones's cameo? He played Derek Martini's assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the start of the film, apparently, he cameos in all his films. That's a proper cameo, though. Like, have it, like I said, Wolf of Wall Street is actually just a role. Whereas, like, if you're just there, like, doing something, and you just glimpse him, that's like a that's an actual cameo. Well, how about you tell that to Quentin Tarantino next time, then? His his roles aren't cameos. It's like it's like Scorsese in Taxi Driver. Roles. That's not a cameo. That's a role. <laughs> <laughs> that's an acting part. That, that's that's the shit that gets you. You're paid. on screen for like more than two minutes. You're getting paid. That's the thing. Yeah, if you get lines, if you get like more than two lines, I think you get paid VGA stand, WGA standards. So I don't know. Quentin Tarantino just trying to bank it. One other thing to mention just before we go on to iWords is uh, I had no idea that Spike Jones was at all related to Jackass in any no, way. He seems to be like heavily connected to all of them, all the films. They use films loosely. Yeah, um, I mean, they, they kind of feel like they come from the same ilk as where he came from as a young director with the skate I was, I was about to say, the, the, the counterculture, they're, they're like real counterculture because it's just like guys with no talent hurting themselves. It's interesting that he's involved with them, but considering that you watch her and it's like so kind of thoughtful and emotional and enigmatic and then you watch jackass and it's like people in a trolley getting thrown off a, <laughs> yeah yeah thrown off a cliff it's weird it, <laughs> it's does, like... it does have like elements maybe it's like like gap advert it's like now i can now i can get people to do it for real seeing as this film is an iwad i'm interested to hear <sighs> any iwads that people have it was a bit weird. i've got a really basic one which oh. is all right so does this, does this mean we've caught we finally caught you out i mean yeah the film itself caught me out right the film itself out out did me but it's based on a really simple observation which is that if if the seven and a half floor is half of a floor right and that's why the ceilings are low then that must mean that the floor underneath floor seven is also only half a floor right because only because two halves make a whole you with me? Yeah. Yeah. You see that in one of the shots when the guy's hoovering at the top. <laughs> well, that's eight. So eight, you just get like a normal, you've got normal a normal floor, floor yeah. and six, you've got a normal floor, but seven is divided in two. And so seven and a half is the second half of that. Anyway, so my point is that the weird clandestine story around floor seven and a half has to include floor seven and we never get to see floor seven. So the question is what's happening on floor seven that we don't get to see in the film. My theory is just quite simple, which is that this magical slide or whatever that, you know, goes <laughs> goes out from floor seven and a half and they think they're kind of going into some magical mindset. Actually, it's just a little slide that goes down to floor seven where someone knocks them out or gives them some drugs or something. So they have some amazing experience and then they fall asleep and they drop them off at the, the New Jersey Turnpike. It was all a dream. Plausible. I guess, I, yeah, it would have to be another half. Didn't he, the captain, built spe- the specific building specifically for it to hold the portal because that's where he found it so wouldn't he just make the seven and a half as a half but seven as seven and eight as normal floors because he knows what's in there why why would that half floor only be half size then the the size of the portal <laughs> my only qualm with that Louis is just, just also with the film is I'm, I'm surprised they can get planning permission and stuff like because they're health and safety regs with like trying to stop the I lift know. halfway up they're staggering I know <laughs> it's a nightmare I mean uh, also the fact there's like no kind of way of even like you've got to crowbar this thing at the right time and press oh, yeah. the stop <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's ready. no real <laughs> way of doing no it no one noticed the dents in the I mean, door yeah. this might be the only iWod that Louis done which doesn't relate to a bigger concept of trying to relate this to the oil crisis 
I feel like you've been out eye-wadded a little bit by John Malkovich. Completely. John Malkovich has outdone me. So, Sparry, you you had an interesting eye-wad, which supposedly actually yeah, so even I, was a theory Yeah, on, I had an, on an interesting one, but I um, then made a, a slightly more ex- expansive one. So the original one was that Get Out is a sequel to um, being John Malkovich, because it's the same Brilliant. actress as Maxine is is the mother in in, um, in Get Out. Um, so her daughter grows up to be the um, the main actress in Get Out and obviously at the end of John Malkovich he's in he's in the sunken place so they basically they basically refine it refine the art to, um, but yeah so it's, it is a continuation and it, it kind of makes sense that um, Get Out was roughly 16, 17 years later so the girl would have grown up to be in her mid, mid-20s but the timeline fits but um, there's, there's way more there's, there's kind of way more to it I think because this theory has been written on reddit and stuff and also there's the con- the concept of like controlling consciousness yeah, yeah. the all the old people that want to get into these bodies exactly, yeah, there's yeah. Like quite a lot of parallels that's crazy jordan peele had to actually come out and be like it's not yeah yeah <laughs> this is just something that someone said <laughs> i did I not know about confirm, this nor deny. <laughs> the main one is called yeah i called it the ecl cult theory so basically ecl stands for extension or continuation of life and when they made being John Malkovich, everyone in the in the, mainly Malkovich and everyone in the crew, well, the idea of the cult in the in the film is that they they basically want to kind of live forever, so be it through John Malkovich or whatever. But actually, the guys making the film really did believe in this. Um, but like any cult, they wanted to spread the word, but they only wanted to keep they they only wanted to allow a select amount of people into the cult. So the way they've done it is they've the main actors in being John Malkovich have since gone on um to star in films which have this theme of either extending or continuing life. So the actress who played Maxime obviously went to do Get Out, as we just explained. Cameron Diaz did Vanilla Sky, which is in a way about trying to extend your life. Yeah, um, that's true. This is slightly more uh, grasping at straws. John Cusack did Hot Dub hot tub time machine um and there is there is a part of that where he has to if they they didn't travel back in time one of the main characters wouldn't have been born so it's about the um ensuring the continuation of life um and finally the big one john malkovich himself he is in a film which is due to be released in 2115 called 100 years oh yeah the, the, the slogan for this is the film you'll never see um and of course the joke is malkovich john malkovich will be able to see the film just not in his current guise because he'll have moved into someone else's body um so there and and it goes on that that are just a few examples that's actually a great theory and that kind of makes a lot of sense and actually that film that john malkovich was going to star in was it was like through an it was an ad right or it started as like a whiskey brand yeah i mean they they call it i think it's called louis the something like a brand of whiskey which you drink it when it's 100 years old so i think i think the film is Uh, in a vault with that bottle of whiskey or something um so it's actually i mean it's it's going to be released in 95 years now because it was made five ago makes a lot well Say it makes a lot of sense. You're saying that it's real, so I don't know how much sense it makes. But there definitely is a there definitely is a connection, especially the Cameron Diaz one. I yeah, can't believe yeah. I didn't even pick up on that. The concept of kind of extending, yeah. Well, it's called life extension, isn't it? In that in Vanilla Sky. Yeah. So that's that. No, I'd buy that. I'd buy that for a dollar. I think you got it. My theory is John Malkovich was controlled by John Cusack the whole time, and that Malkovich never actually even agreed to be in the film. So Kuzak found a way to control John Malkovich, be it through the portal or another way. And the reason for this is, is that there's certain times when Kuzak doesn't have control of him. So the one scene where Malkovich is saying, it's my head, Schwartz, it's my head. And he's like, I'll see you in court. Which I always thought was a weird line to say when all this weird stuff has happened and you're thinking that you're going to go to a court of law and sort this out. That's because Kuzak was in the scene with him. So he lost control of Malkovich and Malkovich is actually... It's actually almost like a documentary at that point. Malkovich was real and was like, I'll see you guys in court. The other reason, the other thing that supports this theory is at the end of that scene, when Malkovich gets hit in the head by a beer can, do you remember that yep. bit? Yeah. Where someone says, think quick and throws a beer can. Spike Jones has said, supposedly on the director's commentary, that a couple of extras got drunk on set and actually drove that car around. And at the end of the scene, one of them threw a beer can at Malkovich's head. Oh my God. And Malkovich just played along with it. And that guy that says, um, hey, Malkovich, think quick. He actually ended up getting like paid because he has a line in the film. So he actually <laughs> I got paid for hitting John Malkovich. <laughs> 
the reason why that supports the theory is that that actually happened on set and therefore that's because Malkovich wasn't wasn't being controlled. So I'm kind of basically doing a bit of a monsters and saying that this film was actually real. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> I, I actually don't have, I'm not really, other than, I did think about this for a minute, but that's probably because I recently read uh, Rosemary's Baby and the end of this film plays a little too much like Rosemary's Baby through the eyes of the Satan. My theory is that Malkovich is, is Satan, but then I realized that that was apparently the original ending. So then I was like, ah, this can't be an eye one no more. Um, so the reason why I think he's the Satan, he spawns of the Antichrist, who's the child. <laughs> uh, but he traps Craig in that little body. And then apparently that's meant to be a battle to take place years, years later. Um, so th there is, this is much like Rosemary's baby. Spoilers for Rosemary's yeah, baby. Again. <laughs> so in, in the climax of Rosemary's baby, Satan's kid uh, is actually born <laughs> and then, it, and then is carried for, for years later. I don't know. This was very loose. And I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels like, like more of a point of view than a theory. <laughs> this is why you shouldn't watch so many films, Ben. There are actually like a, actually a few parallels with Rosemary's Baby, though, because there's I'll a big. Uh, there's a, it's all about a cult, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, yeah. So this and so is this film. Yeah, where it's like you have those the captain with all his cavalry, kind of like trying to transport themselves through. Uh, extend yeah. their life yeah. and that's rosemary's baby as well now you're talking about this as well the parallels between get out are kind of i think i think jordan, i think jordan pill said rosemary's baby might have been an influence or was that yeah stepford wise rosemary's babies anything yeah. pretty much by ira levin seems to be an influence. i feel like there's a trifecta between these three films yeah, that's perhaps. like connecting them. i don't know who, who directed rosemary i don't know it's old school uh, polanski right. oh yeah polanski. That is, that's kind of his breakthrough hit i think breakout not i don't know if it's a breakout but it's definitely put him in a top director's list well, I gotta say that's a different reading to any any of us that we had on being dramatic. So it's, I've accepted it as an iWod. I'm quite surprised that none of us went with the iWod of of it kind of predicting fame, VR, social media. That, all that, kind that of would stuff. have been too easy. <laughs> no, we went in on the building schematics. <laughs> 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 get me those blueprints there's another um severe lockdown and people are like trying to acquire new skills is anyone going to consider puppeteering i suppose you could learn that during lockdown i didn't do what with it could should <laughs> <laughs> no one is implying puppeteers in the current economic climate <laughs> <laughs> these wintry economic conditions all right, so um, luckily no more technical issues. Everyone happy? Yeah, I mean, for now. Yeah. It's a bit late, isn't it? To <laughs> I haven't been able to hear Dennis the whole episode. Yeah. I haven't been able to hear Louis for the last 45 minutes. Um, all right, guys, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from Sparrow. Adios. Goodbye from Louis. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Dennis. Goodbye. We're all about to go and crawl into each other's subconscious. <laughs> Where do you get dropped off though? Captain Roy. Louis, if someone took over your subconscious, where would they get dropped off afterwards? Platinum Nine and Three Quarters. It's another Kaufman thing. Captain Roy, what? what? I don't know. Don't say that. <laughs> epic. Just go to Epic randomly. <laughs> Alright. Peace. Peace. Peace.